Hello and welcome to the Surgical Spirit Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Haider Al-Hakim, the Third Eye Doctor. Pull up a chair and get ready for some candid and uncompromising discussion with experts, innovators, agitators, and influential people from every corner of health and well-being. From inside the hospital to at home in the kitchen, we're leaving no stone unturned in our quest to uncover the secrets of healthier, happier, more successful, and less stressful lives. Thank you so much for joining us, and without further ado, let's meet this episode's guest. Hello, this is Dr. Haida, and some of you are watching here, and that's great, and when I say here, I mean the video, and some of you are listening on the audio, and that's great as well. So for, for you who are listening on the audio, please visit our YouTube channel, because People are watching us here. Dr. Idea. Hello, Sahel. How are you? Hi, Ed. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Very well. Thank you for inviting us to your place. My pleasure. Nice office. And, and um, you've got this... Um, what's this here? What's that? This, uh, this is from Pakistan. It's uh, a litter in which I believe the, wife, the bride is traditionally carried on the day of the wedding. So... Uh, oh, a litter? What's a litter? Yeah, the, like the Romans used to carry it. Is that what it's called? Litter? Yeah, I think so, oh, yes. Wow. Yeah. All right. So uh, I didn't do that. It's very small. I mean, it's yeah, yeah. <laughs> 10 centimetres by 10 centimetres. Yeah. It's probably a sixteenth of the actual size. Yes, this is uh, Hassan Nine behind the camera who's uh, um, talking. Uh, so yeah, guys, if you're listening to this on the podcast, please uh, watch us on video. Um, how long have you been a GP now, Sahel? GP, 13 years. Wow. Qualified almost 20 years now. Wow. From medical school. Yeah. How's it going? Yeah, it's good. It's good. <laughs> you know, um, I think medicine's changed a lot. Yeah. So I don't do the traditional GP thing. I do lots of little bits and pieces. They're called nowadays portfolio GP. Yeah. 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 And, and, and that just gives you scope to essentially have some time doing other things. Yeah, like this as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. You know, having, having certain um, opinions about, about things. And I think the first time we met, it was. It was a religious um, occasion, mm. and, and religion plays a big part in both of our lives. Yeah. And it plays a big part in, in healthcare here in the UK. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, I'm surprised that religion doesn't come into the medical curriculum. I think there is a move towards that, at least bringing in spirituality and an understanding that patients, particularly at the end of their life, mm perhaps turn to that, even if they haven't been religious during their life, you know, they understand that their end is near and they sort of serve for something greater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, was, I, was, I was just thinking that, you know, patients who are vulnerable human beings mm. tend to turn to something greater than, you know, themselves. And even, I guess they turn to us as doctors, as yeah. in, like, you know, we have all the answers. Yeah. And... Um, isn't it? I mean, I, I find it easier when I say, well, actually, if, if they do have a religion, they can always turn to their religion. Yeah, yeah. As if, as a form of comfort, as a form of answers, even. Yeah. I mean, it's not something that I actively do in my consultations because yeah. I think that's a shame. I think we've become a bit sanitized from that. Mm. Um, in you know, having learned what medicine here in the Western world in the UK, it's become part of something else. So it's not something I address even with Muslim patients unless they actively bring it up with me. But I think, yes, there is a source of solace, a sort of, uh, you know, something they can turn to when they're having a hard time, whether it's 
illness or social or psychological? Yeah, I mean, when I was practicing in, in Iraq, I mean, I was practicing for nearly four years. Mm. It was part and parcel of the consultation there. Yeah. You know, it was absolutely normal. We talk about prayers. Mm. I pray for them, they pray for me. Yeah. Um, you know, and during the other different occasions, and, and that always came up as part of the medical consultation, and even part of you know, if you're going to operate or do surgery, it had to be mm. not within those religious occasions, yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, given society, particularly here in the UK, is multicultural and multi religious, yes, I think that's something that you know, probably. The authorities, the GMC, the BMA, you know, the medical hierarchy. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting topic, I think. It is. You know, I so mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't rely upon them to uh, instill any of that into the curriculum or into the medicine. I think they're pretty useless, to be honest. Well, yeah. Well, um, I guess we've got to start from the grassroots. Yeah, I think that's the best. So, um, uh, you know, colleges and... Mm. And medical schools, you know, medical particularly school, yeah. particularly in these areas. I mean, mm. I mean, I I qualified at Bucks in London, which is Whitechapel. Yeah, mm. you know, and uh, it's literally, you know, you hear the adhan, you know, <laughs> every every day, every day, yeah, and you're in clinic and so on, and um, it's quite interesting because uh, we 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 have a lot of uh, Bengalis there and. Mm. Um, pain always came up. Yeah, you know, sort of, they had these sort of complex pains, and and um, there's this term, isn't it, about sort of Asians that have complex. Yeah. So this is something that I think we don't address or we don't tackle. It's these lazy lazy stereotypes that mm. doctors have about ethnic minority patients, mm. whether they're born and bred in the UK or they're from abroad. Or particularly immigrants who are a particularly vulnerable group. So mm. there's this thing that I was reading about complex regional pain syndrome, which in and of itself is extremely complicated to A, diagnose and B, manage and deal with. Mm. So there's a stereotype called the Mrs. Beebe or the Mrs. Begum syndrome. Mm. Now, Beebe and Begum are common Asian or uh, Pakistani names. Mm. And the perception is that these ladies, these elderly, often uh, brown Asian ladies, complain too much and they have a different perception of pain mm. and it's not there's nothing clinically wrong with them there's no objective findings there's nothing that we can do for them but we're quite happy or doctors I should say are quite happy to label them as patients who complain who don't have anything wrong with them they are hard to manage mm. they're a drain on our resources they're a drain on our time and I think these lazy stereotypes are extremely dangerous mm. um, and all it does is it's just propagate the the feeling that there is in this country, I'm afraid to say, of, of the white race is superior. Um, we have white privilege, uh, white middle class, often male, uh, are the people who run this society, from government down to institutions and to the health service. So it's a really difficult thing that um, hasn't been addressed. And it's just something that has been you know labelled in this sort of syndrome, Mrs. Beebe, Mrs. Begum syndrome. Oh, it's just another Asian woman, she's just complaining. There's nothing really wrong with her. Mm. So how, what kind of change do you want to see with this? So I think what we need to do is, A, first of all, highlight that this thing exists. I'm sure that lots of people listening and watching will not even have heard of this syndrome and be totally unaware of it. So A, highlighting that it exists, and B, recognising that and saying, well, if this does exist, 
what can we do to tackle these stereotypes? What can we do to tackle these ingrained prejudices that certain people complain more than they should and they are just a drain on our resources? And I'm sorry to say that um, Asian doctors, I've heard this myself uh, from people I've worked with, are also prone to uh, fall into this trap of labelling people with these lazier stereotypes, these prejudices, and just to agree with their white counterparts that, oh yeah, well it's just Mrs Begum, she's just complaining, there's nothing really wrong with her. And I think what we need to do is understand that um, we, it's, it's an odd position that we find ourselves in as ethnic minority doctors. We're sort of uh, immune to that because we're in a privileged position, but it's as if we should be grateful for having been granted that position that, oh well, you know, we've been allowed to practice medicine, we're the privileged middle class. Um, and so, yeah, we should just parrot and mimic what our colonial masters and, and previous overlords used to say. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking about the word laziness. You, mm -hmm. you know, it is, it is lazy of us as ethnic doctors to, to just sort of brush that away. Yeah. Um, because it is a complex problem. Pain is a complex problem, particularly mm -hmm. our culture. Our yeah. culture is very complex. Yeah. You know, because of uh, generations and generations of, of trauma, essentially. Absolutely, yeah. And um, uh, I think what's important is the awareness, isn't it? Mm. it it's sort of stopping yeah. and realising that we can't just brush it under the carpet and just take it lightly. Um, but the question is, are we more responsible about this because it's our culture? Do you think the... Um, the shortcomings is from us. I mean, that's what it sort of feels like. And I'm not quite, quite follow that. So, it, the onus is on us to change this, this no, stereotype. No. The onus is, is not on the victim of the stereotype to change okay. the stereotype. Right. The onus is on those who propagate the stereotype right. to understand and accept that it is a stereotype and then to make amends for it and to ensure that it doesn't happen because Implicit bias is a big thing now, it's been very fashionable, and it exists. And sometimes, perhaps subconsciously, the doctor is, is doing that without realising that they're doing, mm. doing that. Um, mm. And they're, they're not taking that thing on board. Mm. But the mm. odd thing, this, this, this article that I read about that, mm. this phenomenon, actually the doctors who were displaying this syndrome still oddly carried out investigations and tests and... Uh, did look at the patient and try and work out what was going on. Mm. So perhaps there was an underlying fear that we might be missing something or we may be sued if we don't do uh, all the tests. So they clinically, they actually did what was required, but it was just a mental attitude. So it was like a mindset thing. A mindset thing, yeah, yeah that, they, that they displayed either overtly or perhaps subconsciously. But this mindset thing is sort of more of a cultural thing rather than a medical thing. Yeah. You yeah. know, so it's, it's, it's more of a... Um, nationalistic cultural aspect yes yeah um which has a lot of geopolitical absolutely yes you know issues yeah, yeah of course you know and we can talk for hours and hours on geopolitical issues mm. um but i mean how do we move forward from this okay we've got this stereotyping and stereotyping takes a long time for it to develop or is it a short period of time I think it takes a long time. I think it takes a long time. Yeah. And as you say, there's a lot of cultural and historical baggage associated mm. with this, you know, with the European nations, uh, with their missions and uh, crusades and mm. escapades in foreign countries, where essentially they, 
their aim was to exploit those countries of their natural resources. Mm. And in order to do so, one of the tools that they employed was to talk about barbaric others or talk about the uncivilized masses. Mm. And we, the great white man, the white man's burden, Kipling, you know, we're all, we're all familiar with that. The white man's burden is to civilize these un, uncivilized, these barbaric others. Mm. So I think that ethos is ingrained in the psyche of this nation and, and European nations perhaps generally, but we can speak about the UK because that's where we are. So, but also our nations as well. Mm. You know, even Iraq, I mean, you know, we, 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 we have this mindset that, you know, the white man is more intelligent than us, is more <laughs> yeah. civilised than us. Yes, yes. You know, and that's not a new thing. It's been going on for generations and generations. Yeah. And, and, and actually changing that mindset um, takes a lot of self-awareness. It does. And, I mean, this is perhaps a topic for another day, but decolonisation is a movement that is that is taking root and is growing. So we have to first of all decolonize ourselves and our minds to, to understand that we are not inferior to these people. It's an accident of birth, an accident of ethnicity that we have a darker skin or we have a different culture and a different set of values and ethos. And there's no less inferior. In fact, the civilization started in Babylon, you know, current day Iraq. That's where most people accept that modern civilization began thousands, millennia ago. And then different civilizations yeah. sort of evolved into different areas yeah. and everyone went, went down different paths. Yeah. Do you think this kind of mindset, this inferiority mindset, has seeped into the medical I think uh, so, profession? yeah. Mm. Because even if we talk about India, where I'm from, where my, where my family are from, my dad... You were born the, here. I was born here, yeah. essentially, yes. I was six weeks old when I came here, but to all intents and purposes, yeah. I was born here, lived here, went to school here, trained in medical school here. Well, my dad trained in India, mm. um, came here in 1975 as a young doctor. Mm. Um, but even in India and Pakistan, the whole medical curriculum is taught in English. Mm. So there is this mindset that unless and until we learn English and our medium of instruction is English, I don't know about Arab countries, but... Yeah, same thing. Iraq was the same thing. It's yeah. all taught in English. Yeah. Uh, and, and um, you know, even there, I mean, when I went and taught there, this mindset is... Yes, British is best, mm. Iraqi is not. Yeah. So it was always going towards the, the kind of UK, you know, yeah. that's where the, uh, yeah. you know, the real Mecca is yeah, exactly. for medicine, Mecca of medicine. Yeah, yeah. So I think there's two things. One, and this is the harder thing, is to address and combat the psyche of this nation uh, and to make changes there, which we perhaps can do by educating our peers or our juniors at medical school and teaching them about cultural diversity, uh, multi-ethnicity, the sort of society that we live in. But two, which is more important and perhaps easier, is, is decolonizing our own communities, making our own uh, societies, aware, whether it's Iraqi or Indian or Pakistani, that, look, we have our own rich culture, we have our own heritage that we can draw upon, uh, Ibn Sina, Ibn Rus, all of these amazing... Polymaths, they weren't just, math, they weren't just uh, mathematicians or physicians, they were polymaths, you know, first in astronomy, medicine, art, philosophy, huge, huge figures in, in cultural learning. And the Renaissance only existed because of the learning that the Arabs brought from Greece, from, uh, you know, ancient times, and then added to and expanded upon hugely in, in Muslim Spain. So these figures that we can draw upon as a start, and then going back, looking at what our heritage is, what the Prophet taught. Um, you know, Islam and science are not uh, irreconcilable. They are not diametrically opposed, as perhaps people think Christianity and science are. So we have a huge cultural 
background that we can draw upon. Uh, have you always had this kind of view, or yeah. has this developed over? Well, it's developed. I think, to be honest, it's developed over time. Since I was a teenager, young teenager, so maybe 11, 12, 13, I remember this instance so clearly, vividly, as if it were yesterday. We were in the Tower of London, wherever the crown jewels were kept at that time. And it was me, my mum and dad and my sister. And my mum said, it was in a crowd, it was a summer holiday, crowded room. And she pointed to the crown jewels and said, you see those jewels? They are from Hyderabad, India. This is the city where we come from. I was 11 years old. I was hugely embarrassed. I was turning red and thinking, mum, why are you saying this? And then afterwards, we had a discussion at home. She was saying, look, these resources have been appropriated from our countries, our nations. So since the time I was a young boy, I've been instilled with this value and this ethos that, look, where did this nation come from? How can you call yourself great if your greatness is based upon the exploitation of others and your resources and these beautiful buildings that you built? I mean, the Tate Museum, that was Henry Tate. He was basically a pirate and a terrorist. You know, we, we know about the sugar uh, farms and how people were treated to farm sugar. They had their limbs cut off, you know, all sorts of unbelievable mistreatments. And he built a massive museum of art. Wow, what a philanthropist, what an amazing guy. But where did that come from? Where did his wealth come from? So this thing has been instilled in me since I've been young. And, and when people hear me talk about it, they think this guy's weird. Mm. What is he going on about? Why is he talking about these things that happened decades, centuries ago? But, but if we don't know what our history is and what, where this thing has come from, then how can we possibly, A, recognise it and B, act against it when we see it? Mm. Mm. And, and, and uh, given that um, uh, a lot of medical practitioners are Asians or yeah. and sort of non-Caucasians, non yeah. um, and, and that's unlikely to change as well mm. in the near future, particularly with Brexit around the corner, yeah. they need even more help from, uh, <laughs> Absolutely. That's from surrounding uh, neighbours and yeah. countries. Yeah. Um, I mean, how, how can we move forward with this? I mean, uh, you know, you sort of gave, gave us a few uh, um, tips on this, and it is a mindset shift on our side. Mm. And I think for me, it's just being more courageous about your culture and about your past, yeah. and about what your ancestry is about, mm. and, and getting your voice out there. I think that's really important. Um, but it's a difficult, it's a difficult issue. It is a difficult issue because a lot of people out there say that the GMC are racist. Yeah. Or, you know, the uh, racist in the sense that people of ethnicity or, or um, minorities are discriminated against or if they are being investigated, mm. you know, it, it's um, your disadvantage. Yeah, so, I mean, there's been lots of evidence that's shown A, Asian, Black and ethnic minority doctors are referred more often to the GMC. Mm. What they're referred for is often non-clinical so social or other issues um, where they can't mount a, a defence saying that, oh, well, I didn't do anything that was out of what normal practice was. So often weird and uh, sort of esoteric reasons that they refer to the GMC. Mm. And even when they're referred, and say there was a, a white doctor who'd been referred for a similar thing, the sanction against the ethnic minority doctor is often greater and more punitive. I mean, the huge case that we know about most recently in the last couple of years, is Bawa Gaba. Mm. You know, a, pediatri a pediatric registrar who was working, covering six wards, working for, as the cons covering the consultant who was not there, covering the SHO, dealing with a very sick child, 
and the vitriol and the hate that was propagated, particularly by the Daily Mail, an absolutely abhorrent publication. And the pictures that they portrayed of this sweet looking child. I mean, let's first of all, I want to clarify that. It's extremely sad that this young boy died um, and suffered this untoward clinical incident. But the, the, way, the way it's portrayed, the Baba is severe, harsh looking woman, black woman in a hijab versus this sweet looking child. And that, mm. And the extrapolation and the and the you know the difference that they showed in these photographs, and there was a clear agenda behind it. The right wing press were clearly pushing this agenda that this Nigerian Muslim doctor, who actually trained here in Leicester, mm. let's not forget that you know she's culpable for this. She should take the blame. And the GMC and the MPTS Medical Practitioners Tribunal Service they fell into line with what the right wing press and the right wing establishment wanted wanted them to do. Mm. So it's fear, fear sells. Fear for themselves, fear for not seeming to uh, uphold what mass hysteria, which could have resulted, you know, um, what that might result in, what the outcome might be if they weren't seen to act against this foreign doctor who uh, obviously was clinically negligent and there was nothing to do with the fact that she was understaffed, under-resourced and had no one to help her dealing with a sick child and all covering all these other walls as well. That, of course, that wasn't relevant. But it's created these dialogues that we're having now, yeah. it's created other movements as well mm. here in the UK and even worldwide. And I think that it's, um, it's one of these examples where um, disasters do lead to change. Mm. They do, yes. I mean, I was amazed and you know, heartened to see the response that there was a massive crowdfunding campaign for her legal mm. campaign. Um, and, you know, it was led by white doctors. Let's, let's be honest, it was led by white doctors who, uh, who said, well, this is not right, you know. Let's look at this objectively and see what the situation was and how can we possibly punish someone who had to work under such undue stress, such circumstances that we wouldn't hope that anyone would have to work under. So that was heartening to see, but that was a one response to a one incident. I think the psyche and the mentality that is um, underlying and pervasive in this society, and you mentioned Brexit, it's only going to get worse. Mm. Racism, xenophobia, particularly Islamophobia, these sorts of things have been and are rising on a daily basis. We see it everywhere, portrayed, whether it's this poster that Nigel Farage put out of floods of brown people swarming this country, or the uh, pronouncements by Boris saying, if you come over here, across the channel on a boat, you'll be sent home. I mean, what kind of humanity is that? The most vulnerable and uh, this, this destitute uh, sort of poor population, mm. immigrants, you know, you're gonna send them back to die. What kind of attitude is that? It's not easy. Mm. It's not easy. And I think um, uh, fear and, and, and ignorance are the underlying uh, problems here. Mm. And the only way to sort of counteract this is to talk about these things yeah. and, and create policy change. Mm. I think that's the only way forward. Um, and, you know, words are very powerful, you know, particularly <laughs> racially... Mm connected words as well I think that's still a bit of a bit of an issue yeah you know that that it's not talked about enough you know ra racially sensitive words yeah um yeah it's sort of interesting and and and, and given that we, we are in a multicultural society I mean, we can't deny that no no you know you know we, we we can't say that we're all just one particular paint absolutely and you know, life, there, there's, there was an old uh, uh, Mercedes ad, and it used a song, if everybody looked the same, 
um, I can't remember the song now, but you know, basically they're saying, if everything was the same, if every Mercedes was the same, wouldn't it be a boring world? And uh, it's the same with people. I thought all Mercedes looked the same. Right? <laughs> I don't know. But I'm anyway, Mercedes. Um, yeah. yeah, but, but I yeah, I mean, it's it's we need to find a uh, we need to find a way of sitting together, working together, mm. eating together, and um, getting rid of the bad apples essentially. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's the bad apples that that um, mess everything up. Yeah, actually, it's interesting. It reminds me of a quote of uh, Muhammad Ali on Parkinson. Uh, and Michael Parkinson said to him, well, you know, surely not all white people are bad. And he said, no, of course not. But he said, if you had uh, a basket of apples and there was a snake in there, a poisonous snake, would you put your hand in there? And he's saying, um, no, of course you wouldn't. So he's saying, look, that's the same thing. If there's a small minority of people who are poisonous, how do you know which ones are okay, which ones are not? So, um, you know, it's difficult. It's difficult, but I think dialogue is important. And if we... Dialogue is really important. Yes. And, and also on the Asian and on the ethnic side of things, you know, we need to change that mindset as well. Yeah. You know, that we are rich in, in everything, essentially. Mm. You know, we don't have to get rid of our our past, so yeah, to speak. Absolutely, yeah. You know, the more we embrace it mm. and are able to integrate and are able to... I mean... I know some people have negative connotations with assimilation, but I think if we can have our own and assimilate mm. with the current, I think that would be a good thing. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the, th the thing that saddens me is that I think my kids are going to have trouble and struggle speaking Urdu, our, our language. I mean, I, I struggle with it as well. Yeah. Um, so this is a mindset. And, you know, like I said, it affects all of us. I think it affected my parents when they came to the UK in, in the mid-70s. There was still of that mindset that we must teach our children English. Mm. Um, our language is sort of secondary. So I do speak it, um, but I'm not fluent in it. And so my kids are going to be even less fluent in Urdu, the language that. So maybe the onus is on us to be more rich in our yeah, own culture, absolutely. in our own language, in our own um, heritage and ancestry. And that way we understand the weight of what we have. Yeah. And then we can use that to contribute to current society. Absolutely. I mean, you Maybe know, that's something to think about. If you take away a man's language, you take away everything that is his. You know, the cultural history, yeah. the literature, the poetry, um, art, philosophy, all of these things that we don't have access to. There are huge reams and reams of knowledge that we just cannot avail ourselves of. And, you know, coming back to a more positive sort of aspect of, mm. you know, we're, we're, we're coming towards the end of the... Um, of this episode is that we're bringing this metaphysical aspect of our existence into ourselves, which is the culture and the heritage and um, the language that we have, and then packaging packaging it into the twenty first century to um, allow our patients to get better. And you know, lifestyle medicine is the next big thing now, isn't it? Yeah, of course. And you know, that's what it's about. If we're able to um, bring our heritage and the current um, problems that we have, bring it together, physical and metaphysical, mm. make it into a lifestyle-like medicine in the 21st century. I think that's a good thing. Yeah, and I think only uh, more people will benefit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Bring, bring everyone together and, and, and having these um, dialogues of difficult topics. Mm. You know, it's not easy hearing these words, mm. white, Asian, 
Paki, yeah. Arab, whatever, you yeah. know, these kind of, you know, they're very emotive words. Mm. Um, but we need to have these, di- you know, these dialogues in a, in a relatively civilised <laughs> discussion, yeah. Yeah. you know, rather than, have, you know, turning it into something that's, you know, violent or um, mm. uh, uh, physical. Uh, any any, any uh, last pointers, Dr. Sahel, before um, we say goodbye to the... Uh, the viewers and the listeners. I think basically it's just understanding that at the end of the day, when we all bleed, our blood is the same. It's still red. It doesn't matter what the colour of the skin on the top of it is. We still bleed the same blood. We're still humans. We still share the same humanity. And we still have pain and suffering and joy and happiness as well. And we, yeah. all, all that any one of us wants to experience, whether it's here in the UK or in Iraq or in Palestine or in India, we just want to have a happy peaceful life and get on with what uh, what we can do with our families and our loved ones. I think that's, if we understand that and try and live by that, I think the world will be a better place. Thank you so much, Sir. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Good. Thanks for listening to this instalment of the Surgical Spirit Podcast. For all the latest in the world of Surgical Spirit, don't forget to follow on Twitter at The Third Eye Doc and catch me on Facebook at the page The Third Eye Doctor. You can visit the website at www.thethirdeyedoctor.co.uk for more information on the work that I do. And please send us feedback and questions and suggestions for the podcast. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. I've been Dr. Haida Al-Hakim and I'll see you next time.